Evening. Welcome back. Uh, while we were sitting, another um, uh, Zen story occurred to me that I wanted to share with you. Uh, there once was a Zen teacher named Xuan Sha, and um, he had a saying that he used a lot. Sometimes, most of us, you know, come up with our, our you know, bullet points, selling points things that we repeat. Uh, one of the things he used to say was, all the universe is one bright pearl. What do you think? <laughs> he didn't say, what do you think? I added that. In fact, uh, it's fairly likely that you don't think so. There's a lot of um, circumstances in the universe that aren't, don't appear to be a bright pearl. There's many facets, and um, a lot of the facets um, do not sparkle. Uh, one day a monk asked Xuan Sha, uh, you say all the universe is one bright pearl. How am I to understand that? And Xuan Sha said, um, do you have, uh, what need do you have to understand? Why do you need to understand that? Uh, so the next day, um, and the monk bowed and left, and then the next day, Shuansa went to the monk and said, all the universe is one bright pearl. How do you understand that? <laughs> and the monk said, uh, what need do you have to understand? <laughs> and then, um, you know, when I first worked on this, chapter from Zen Master Dogen uh, with Kaz Tanahashi many, many years ago. Uh, we translated it uh, where the Zen Master says, I see you're living in the black mountain cave of demons. Uh, and now there's a new translation. <laughs> and the new translation is, I see you've found a way through the black mountain cave of demons. I think of this story partly because um, I, I sense um, uh, more often now um, how, um, how each of us in our own way is often um, a bit wounded. And you know, uh, the fundamental uh, wound is, you know, and then we, we because things have happened in our life where things have gone wrong. 
um, you know, a, a partner dies, a child dies, uh, somebody is sick, um, we say the wrong thing and people are really mad at us. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, things haven't worked out. You know, there's divorces and um, families who disown one another and all kinds of things have happened. So is all the universe one bright pearl? <laughs> Later in this chapter, Dogen says, oh, that's all, those are all the things that have happened, the confusion, the delusion, the mistakes, the difficulties, the problems, that's all the one bright pearl in masquerade. <laughs> How do you understand this? <laughs> How are we to understand this? And, you know, uh, the fact that things don't work out um, um, consistently, regularly, that things go wrong often enough, we start to think, uh, we start to suspect, at least, if not outright believe, there's probably something fundamentally defective about me <laughs> that I need to do something about. Maybe it would help to meditate. <laughs> and I can, you know, uh, clear up some of the dust. Clear away some of the dust uh, that's clouding my mind, my awareness, and do things more carefully and conscientiously and good-heartedly. And I won't get myself, I won't make the same mistakes over again uh, that I made uh, that, you know, because when something goes wrong, we start to think it must be, it's probably my fault. I did, I must have done something, otherwise, um, you know, everything would be good. But, you know, if, if I'm suffering, I must have done something wrong. So this is, you know, what we tend to suspect or believe. And so, again, I'm asking, you know, for you to consider, is it true? Is it true? Do you, is there anything fundamentally wrong with any of us? Fundamentally, inherently, or does, or is it, you know, which I have come to believe, or is it more the case that, no matter how hard you try and no matter how good your intention is, things are not all going to come out the way you want them to. <laughs> And every time that they don't, you can tend to think, oh gosh, maybe there is something fundamentally wrong with me. Now sometimes I think maybe this is just a Christian view, you know, like you've got original sin. Something fundamentally wrong. Something defective. And if something, if you believe that something is defective, then you will look for uh, what is the right thing to do that will show me and others that I am actually not defective? <laughs> because if I'm not defective, then they would love me, and if I wasn't defective, I could love myself. This is how I think about this sometimes. Am I making sense here? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so, okay, thank you. <laughs> So uh, then, you know, uh, what, what will we do? You know, is there any way to convince you or yourself, you know, or to talk this over with yourself or to look carefully, to study, you know, is there something fundamentally uh, defective with me or, or uh, wrong with me? Uh, that I somehow need to fix, and then, uh, and then things will be okay, and then everything will work out better. So this is a very strong, uh, such a strong belief, you know, that this Japanese Zen master said, for 30 years I tried to clean away the dust of my consciousness. For 30 years I tried to stop being defective. <laughs> to see things clearly, to not get entangled in my negative, afflictive emotions, to, you know, to be kind and generous and compassionate and to, you know, do the right thing and to, you know, do the, the best thing. And I tried to do this for 30 years. I tried to clean up my act, <laughs> we could say, you know. And then after 30 years, he says, I realized that my trying to clean it up was more dust, <laughs> was more dirt, was more, was more a defective way of behaving. Okay? So this is one view, you know, of, um, you know, this is the, so to say that from the first, you know, from the first, you're okay, we're okay, there's no, I mean, Buddhism sometimes says, well, there's no self, what, what are you talking about? You know, and if you can start to look on a particular occasion, this happened. Does that say there's something inherently defective beneath the surface that we're not able to find? And that's the only reason that the thing above the surface happened? You know. So we can say on a particular occasion, there was this pain. Uh, there was this suffering. Uh, somebody said something, I reacted. So there's a big difference, though, in the kind of suffering we experience when we believe that in this inherent defect, that I am defective, then, we, I, then I really suffer. So now I'm going to tell you my parking story. <laughs> uh, I have a little meditation hall outside of my house, um, and people come to the meditation hall up the driveway, past the carport, across the patio, into the meditation hall, and several times a week it's also a yoga studio. So a couple weeks ago, um, uh, there was a yoga class going on, and I was, um, at one point, I was in my house, and, you know, the yoga studio, the yoga class, by and large, you know, it's very peaceful, very quiet. There's a kind of focus and stillness in the air, and um, eight or ten people come to this, these classes often. 
So, uh, you know, it feels pretty nice. And then uh, I was in the house talking with someone on the phone, and then there's a knock-knock on the door. The doorbell doesn't work, and I just happened to be by the front door, so I, op- I opened it holding the phone. <laughs> yes, and it's my neighbor from down the street. And, um, and she says, Ed, excuse me, and I say, excuse me, into the phone. <laughs> Um, but um, Jeannie here, and Jeannie, the other neighbor, is standing at the bottom of the steps to my front door, not even coming up the steps. She's like, (laughs) who feels small and, you know, and Wendy is doing her best to be Jenny's, you know, spokesperson. (laughs) And there's a big car. I think it's a Denali parked across Jeannie's driveway. The Fairfax police is here. They say it belongs to Chris. Do you know Chris? Because if you don't know Chris, we're towing it. If Chris isn't a friend of yours, we're moving it. So I said, well, I don't know whose car that is, but you know, it's probably someone in the yoga class. So I'll, we'll talk to them and we'll see. And then she said, no, it's, it's um, well, yeah, you know, actually, it, no, it's not a Denali. It's a Tahoe. It's a Tahoe. <laughs> so then uh, my partner, Margot, went out to the yoga class. And first of all, she knocks on the door. And then she goes to get in the class. And there's somebody all, sprawled across the door. So you, <laughs> she couldn't get in. They're all... <laughs> towards the end of yoga class, you know, so they're... Uh, so she finally gets in the room and she says, excuse me, but um, there's a Tahoe parked across a neighbor's driveway. It belongs to Chris. And um, no, nobody says, nobody's like, <laughs> <laughs> they're in their yoga samadhi, their yoga bliss. And then she says, the Fairfax police is here and they're about to tow it. A Tahoe. It's a Tahoe, yoo-hoo, the Fairfax police is here. And then a woman like, oh, oh, that's probably mine. <laughs> so, so she gets up and uh, moves her car. And I'm, meanwhile, back on the phone, you know, talk, talk, talking. Well, then I had an appointment <clears throat> uh, in Sausalito with my chiropractor person, who Nancy Hollis, who uses an activator. So it's a very quick adjustment without, you know, it's a great little machine, you know, that has a high-velocity thing on the end that goes pop, pop, pop in just the right places. Um, marvelous. Anyway, I had an appointment with her, and I pride myself on not being late for my appointments with Nancy. <laughs> because if you're not late for your appointments, then you, you know, she will do anything for you. She will fit you in to other times because she knows she can count on you to be there at other times. So she will accommodate you if you're consistently on time for your appointments. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be on time. So I get out to my car and there's a Tahoe (laughs) parked right in front of my car. (laughs) Big Chevrolet logo across. And these are huge vehicles. 
And, you know, if it was a regular sized car, I could maybe, you know, drive around it and just like leave it there. Oh, uh, so anyway. So I did not make the polite announcement. You know, at that point, I, I thought, okay, I will, I will, I will activate my rage. <laughs> so I went back, and at this point, you know, the yoga class was kind of starting to come out. In fact, one of the women, who's also in my meditation group, had already walked past me as I walked to my car. So they're coming out of the yoga class. So I just went over and I started screaming. It's not enough to park across somebody else's driveway. Now you have to block my driveway. <laughs> Only I was screaming, you know, not like I'm just doing it now. My next door neighbor later said, well, you know, Ed, when you scream, people take you seriously. Because <laughs> it really sounds like you mean it. Anyway, then a small voice, sheepish voice says, Oh, I guess that's my car. <laughs> I'll move it. So um, she moved the car and I just, I left. So I still don't know, you know, exactly what happened. I mean, you know, in Buddhist practice, one is advised. <laughs> Think over some other explanations for what happened. Rather than the one that's occurring to you just naturally. <laughs> you know, a lot of people I tell this to say, how rude, how inconsiderate. Um, but, you know, Buddhists, you know, like maybe she's in the process of having a messy divorce with her husband. You know, maybe her kids are sick. Um, you know, maybe, you know, her, you know, her son is... You know, maybe her daughter had a miscarriage, you know. I mean, you, you try to dream up some other possible explanations for the behavior, and then, and then you endeavor to have a careful kind of compassionate conversation. Maybe you didn't notice that your car is in my driveway. It, that this is my driveway where you parked your car. And I need to go someplace, and if you would be so kind just to move it and... So, um, you know, I actually then, so then um, I started apologizing to people. <laughs> because, you know, I don't consider that other people's idiocy is an excuse for me to make an idiot of myself. You know, that, that I don't consider that that justifies me to act however I want, just because she acts however she wants. You know, and is not thinking about how it's going to affect other people. Um, and then I'm not thinking about how it can affect other people. So then I apologize to people saying, and I said, well, you know, I aimed, my interest is to have a good-hearted, uh, clear communication with people. And uh, I did not manage to do that in this case, so I apologize. And I will renew my intention and my aim to uh, communicate carefully and clearly. Um, so, um, and then several people said, oh, well, that was so nice. Thank you for apologizing. 
Um, this is for me just a small example of, you know, uh, what are you going to do? You know, just, you know, various things happen and then um, can you fix it? Can you change it? Can you, you know, if somebody, um, if your spouse dies or your child dies, there's nothing you can do and it doesn't matter how much you scream. Um, but maybe, but on the other hand, uh, not doing anything uh, is not a help either. <laughs> you know, one Zen master said, whatever you do, whatever you say, it's not a help. It's of no avail. It's not going to make much difference. And uh, his student said, yeah, but if you don't say anything and you don't do anything, that's of no use either. <laughs> So we're in this predicament. Now the teacher said, it's like planting flowers on a rock. And the student said, you can't even insert a needle. Anyway, sometimes I think, you know, because we feel like I can't do something right, you know, I'm going to be like the woman, you'll be like the woman down at the bottom of the stairs. Somebody's parked across my driveway. I'm, I don't dare say anything, <laughs> you know, um, because why, you know? Because I might not know what to say. Because I might get angry like Ed got angry, and I wouldn't want to do that. Because, because I don't know how to do this skillfully, so I'm, I'm going to, uh, maybe my neighbor, I can talk to her, and I know her, and she can, she can see what she can do about this. So we're in these various circumstances in our life, and so I've tended to err on the side of, okay, I will make a fool of myself. <laughs> Rather than not saying and not doing, I will say and I will do, and uh, little by little I'll learn how to say and do a little bit better because I've been practicing and putting my foot in my mouth for so long. Which... Of course, leads me to, I say of course, but um, Margot just sent, you know, Margot, my partner, has little quotes at the bottom of her email. So the most recent one is from Michelangelo. And Michelangelo said, if people knew how hard I worked to earn my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful after all. <laughs> That's an artist who's made a lot of mistakes. You know, and has to had paint over a lot of things and start a lot of sculptures and, you know, overcome a lot of disasters and mistakes and, and work with all the problems and, you know, to get to a place where he knows what to do. Um, and that's saying, and then, and then it's like, it's not just that your defects, like you have some defects, but everybody gets to see them. So this is a very uh, interesting question, I think. You know, is it okay for people to see your defects or not? So, um, you know, Zen Master Dogen, for instance, says, um, see if you can be sincere and wholehearted. And uh, when I've studied the word sincere, the S-I-N means without, like sans, French, S-A-N-S, without, and the sere is wax, without wax, and the wax was used 
to fill in the bronzes, the little blemishes. You could cover them over, cover them in with wax, and you could clip a part of the coin away and then fill it in with wax. So um, sincere is without wax. In other words, your blemishes, your imperfections, it all shows. And of course, you know, you don't want to end up in jail. <laughs> or, you know, I did have one friend who, you know, the, the trucks drove up outside and these men got out and they came and took him away to the mental institute. We asked him later, how did that happen? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and we said, do you suppose it might have been your wife calling them? <laughs> oh, I don't think she would do that. <laughs> well, how did this happen? I don't know. So, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, some caution here. <laughs> As far as, you know, there's a whole spectrum here from acting out, way out, <laughs> and, you know, not saying, not doing anything, standing at the bottom of the stairs, being small, and not, not speaking up, not responding, not being able to say something about what you feel or what's going on with you because, uh, you know, it might um, upset or displease or disappoint someone else. And how could you be sure to, whether if you actually revealed yourself, whether that would happen or not? So, and then, so what will we do? Are you in charge of other people's behavior? Is it true that when somebody says, you make me mad, you disappoint me, uh, you upset me, um, is that true? And did you do that to them? So this is, this is so important, you know, to study these things. Is it true? Now, I'm certainly, I certainly want to take responsibility for my part, but I can't take responsibility for somebody else's experience. Do you understand? I can take responsibility for, I, I screamed, you know, I yelled, Okay, and you know, I, I, my aim is not to communicate like that, but if somebody else says, that really upset me, that really this, that really that, and you made me feel that way, I like, just a minute now, when I said that, you were upset. Okay, I didn't make you anything. And when, if you're going to take on the world's, you know, response to you and try to control their experience, you will certainly find yourself to be defective. Because <laughs> it can't be done. You know, it can't be done no matter how hard you try. And, you know, partly I know this from observing other people, but partly I know from having tried to do this for so many years, maybe 30 at least, like the Zen master in the poem. For 30 years, I tried not to do anything that would possibly upset anybody. <laughs> that would possibly disappoint anybody or scare anybody. Or, but then, you know, and then I'm, 
uh, it's what's called passive aggressive. I'm okay with this, you bitch. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> so um, it actually doesn't work. So, you know, and then Zen Master Dogen calls this give yourself to yourself, give others to others. Giving others to others means let them have their experience and don't take responsibility for it. Take responsibility for your behavior, not for their experience. And, you know, I, I find, you know, I keep studying, like, is there some way to, you know, be free, to express myself on this occasion? And I've, I'm, excuse me, I'm gonna check the time here. Oh, good, we're coming along. Lots of time left. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I've, I've come to, um, well, let's, let me backtrack a little bit more than that. Um, you know, I think part of what um, draws us to um, meditation and certainly drew me to meditation is to study how to be, you know, what uh, Wendell Berry called nurturing. Wendell Berry wrote a wonderful book um, many years ago called The Unsettling of America. If you're familiar with this book, you know that he starts out by talking about the mind of exploitation, that America has been, um, has had a large component of the mind of exploitation. You go west, you find some place, take what you can get, and then move on. You, you get the oil from some place, and, you know, and then you move on to somewhere else. You get what you can out of relationship and move on. Have another relationship. So this is part of the American idea of, and then people will say to you once you've started meditation, well, what do you get out of it? <laughs> Are you properly exploiting your time here and, you know, getting something really hot and useful and valuable out of this meditation that you're doing? Are, are you exploiting the situation for all it's worth, or are you just kind of navel-gazing there? I mean, what, a, what is this about? You know, and it's, it's, it's a little hard to tell people sometimes, like, excuse me, but I'm seeing if I can shift from this seeing what I can get out of it to what I can do to take care of the situation and how to take care of myself, you know, when I'm just sitting with myself and how to take care of others, and how to take care of my life, and how to nurture. So, and this is like when you have a family, and often it's a big shift in men when they get married and they start having kids, and then it's a big shift from like seeing what you can get to seeing how do you, how do you take care of this family. And sometimes, of course, that means that they're working way too much and you know various things, but anyway. Um, but when you have a family and then you, you're staying in the same place, you're not seeing if, what you can exploit and then move on. You're seeing what you can do to take care of this and watch something grow and nourish something and take care of the soil that the plants come out of and take care of your kids in the schools. And, and then you're, and you're, you're studying so many things to see what you can do. What's a good circumstance for my, my children? How do, and how do I do this? And how do I provide a you know, a, um, a really positive home where my children can grow up and flourish. And we're studying how to do this in our, in our meditation, 
You know, how can I? So instead of like, so I love it when people say, um, instead of pay attention to your breath, you know, Suzuki Rishi said, be kind with your breath. See if you can have a warm, kind feeling for your breath like a mother for her baby. And, uh, you know, my granddaughter is now one year old, just this last week. And after she was born, my daughter said, Dad, I, I can't believe how you could... I had no idea you could love somebody this much. So what about that feeling for your breath? Uh, rather than, oh, if I follow my breath, maybe I'll get something out of this. <laughs> okay, let's follow the breath now. Okay. <laughs> and of course, Thich Nhat Hanh teaches... Um, over and over again for years was teaching, um, please enjoy, enjoy your breath. Let yourself be moved by your breath and find some joy in the sensations of breathing, allowing a oh, full inhale and a full exhale. And, um, and this, uh, this enjoyment is the kind of resonating, resonating with, to be moved by something. And when you're moved by something and resonating with it, then you don't try to exploit it. And you're benefiting your breath, and the breath is benefiting you. It's mutually beneficial. You give your breath to your breath. You give yourself to yourself. So you don't try to tell your breath, you need to be longer. You need to be calmer. Why don't you get it together? How come you're so agitated? For 30 years, I tried to straighten out my breath. <laughs> before I realized that my trying to straighten it out was mixing it up. <laughs> you know, this is, this is so interesting. You know, how do we do this? So, um, more recently I've come to think of this uh, exploitation and nurturing more in terms of sometimes I feel like... Um, you know, we can easily get caught up in thinking that practicing Buddhism, practicing meditation, is a better way to manage one's, my life. You know, I'll, I'll become a better manager, and I'll take care of my mind, and I'll, have, I'll be able to have a beautiful mind, and a kind mind, and a compassionate mind. I'll be able to, you know, fix the defects. Or, I'll be able to behave in a way where people don't see them. <laughs> I'm going to be spiritual. So, um, again, um, you know, Suzuki Roshi then said, um, you practice carefully enough, and, you know, so you realize finally that hindrances are the way. Hindrances are an opportunity for practice. An opportunity for practice is... You know, sometimes when, you know, I'm a little impatient, which, as you've just heard, I can be, you know, that's called another F-G-O. Do you know that expression? Growth opportunity, another effing growth opportunity. <laughs> so, I don't want to give you know, hindrances and difficulties and obstacles and your defects, a bad name. <laughs> Although I know sometimes we can see them like that. Um, 
But, you know, opportunity for practice means there's no way around this. There's no way around having difficulties and problems and obstacles and hindrances. So study how to have these things. Study how to have the problems and study how to live with them rather than how to get rid of them. And how to include them in your life and how to include them in your awareness so you can respond in a more... and. And this idea that you could have defects, you could have hindrances, and then other people could too. And then we wouldn't be jumping on each other for the slightest sign of some imperfection, which we sometimes do. You know, in certain places, that can happen. So, as I begin to have, you know, compassion for my own shortcomings and my own difficulties, and take this as something to study and something to learn. And this is so, opportunity for practice doesn't mean just an opportunity to be patient and forbearing and stand at the bottom of the stairs. You know, an opportunity for practice means an opportunity to study. What, what is going on here? What part of this is mine? What part of this is theirs? Um, how does life work? How do I think? Um, what uh, you know? What's the what's the way to encourage somebody? What doesn't encourage somebody? How do I encourage myself? How do I take care of myself? How do I support my own efforts? You know, and how do I do this for others? And over and over again, I can tell you, you know, um, as soon as you say you need to, <laughs> why don't you? <laughs> we'll try and you start giving out advice, I mean, it's, you're, you're, you know, I don't know about you, I don't want to hear it. You just told me I was wrong for doing what I just did. And I know if I knew better and, you know, I would do it better, okay, I get that. But how will I actually do it better or differently in the future? I'm going to have to acknowledge my own shortcoming my, and the hindrance and the way I get, where I get blocked and study it. And see, and then, and then at some point, you know, I think of, I mean, on one hand there's study, and then on another hand, there's at some point you dreaming up what to do. As I said, you know, we're all creative. We're all, our minds are all, have this capacity to learn. And to learn something, you have to not know something. Otherwise, if you already knew it, you wouldn't be learning it. So what helps us learn? How can we learn something? Rather than just trying to follow the instructions or the, uh, you know, the description of what a, a good person is like, how do I learn how to respond to circumstances you know, out of, uh, you know, from my heart and, you know, from my creative response to the, to the world. And the only way any of us are going to be able to learn this, as far as I can tell, is you're going to make some mistakes. <laughs> if you never make any mistakes, then you, it's, it's fairly hard to learn anything. You know, this is like, um, at one point, you know, I was studying hands-on healing, and I said to my teacher, you know, I have stiff wrists. <laughs> they don't bend back. <laughs> is that genetic or is that childhood trauma? <laughs> is that falling out of the tree and breaking your fall? What is that? 
I don't know, but anyway, I asked my hands-on healing teacher, and he said, and I told him, you know, sometimes I, I can't find my hands. It seems like my awareness stops here at the wrist. And he said, Ed, um, uh, you sound like, you know, I'm guessing you're an old soul. <laughs> I don't know about all this stuff, old soul, young soul, you know, but... You know, okay, I'm willing to go along with the language that somebody's using, and what, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, well, as an old soul, you've already made so many mistakes in all of your past lives, you don't want to make any mistakes in this life. So the way not to make any mistakes is not do anything, not say anything. Then you won't make any mistakes. And just to be on the safe side, don't even have hands. <laughs> So this is one side of things is, I don't have hands, I don't have the capacity to speak, I don't have the capacity to, because I don't want to say the wrong thing, I don't want to do something that upsets other people, I don't want to get myself in trouble, I don't want people to criticize me, I don't want them to attack me, and so I will, I will see if I can learn how to be more patient. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said for being more patient, you know, but also there's there's the teaching for the occasion. You know, I'm someone who needs to learn how to be more patient. You, you decide for yourself whether you're someone who needs to be more patient or you're someone who needs to take a chance, risk something, express yourself, do something, try out something, see what you can come up with. You know, whether it's in your meditation or in your daily life and see what happens and then, and then respond to that and... And then, if necessary, you apologize. <laughs> so Suzuki Roshi's, um, you know, my Zen teacher. Uh, even though now I've done years of vipassana practice and various other things, I still come back to these basic teachings I received, um, you know, from Suzuki Roshi. And he used to talk about the precepts, you know, the Buddhist precepts in this same way. That the Buddhist precepts, you know, a disciple of the Buddha does not kill. A disciple of the Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of the Buddha does not, um, you know, commit sexual misconduct. Uh, you know, however that's described and so forth. And, um, and he said there's two understandings of these precepts. You know, one is... You take them literally, and then you practice not killing. And you practice not taking what isn't given. One of my students at one point decided that uh, her daughter was uh, just starting high school, and she decided, oh, my time is not just my time. I'm taking my daughter's time. When I get home in the evening, I'm answering the phone for work. I need to um, not be taking my daughter's time. You know, what isn't given to me, unless she gives it to me. So she talked to her daughter, and then they, de they decided she wasn't going to answer the phone in the evening. Sometimes her, her daughter would answer the phone and say, my mom's not available. <laughs> and then they started going for a walk every afternoon. And even when one of them wasn't there, the other one would go for the walk anyway. And then later they'd talk about what happened on that walk by themselves, or they'd talk on the walk. 
And it came from this kind of literal, like, how do I do this? Not take what isn't given. What are, what are examples of that? You could also, um, well, anyway, you know, there's, there's so many ways to understand all of these things. Um, and on the other hand, you know, Suzuki said, when you're meditating, you are not breaking any precepts. <laughs> Problem comes when you stand up <laughs> and start to walk around. <laughs> so his idea of meditation is to express your, your practicing meditation as a way of expressing your true nature. So this is the, um, you know, this is along with the idea that there's, uh, you know, um, there's practice, study, enlightenment. And mostly we think if I practice enough and I study uh, text enough, eventually I will get enlightened. But on the other hand, why did you start practicing? You started practicing because you were enlightened. Otherwise, you wouldn't see the benefit in it. <laughs> Do you understand? Because we have some enlightenment and some understanding, we're doing what we do in our life. We're seeing, we're seeing what we can do differently. We're trying out something. We're studying how to sit, how to meditate. You know, so this is because we understand uh, this hasn't worked out. Following my usual path and the things I knew um, you know, as a young adult and as a child and as a young adult and coming into my adulthood, all the things I knew and the ways I knew how to behave it didn't work out as well as I thought it would. There's something defective with me. <laughs> what can I do? I'll sit. I'll clear some things up here. I'll straighten some things out. But on the other hand, Suzuki Roshi said, you know, your, your true nature, there's nothing wrong with your true nature. Your true nature is like big mind and vast and spacious and, um, and isn't caught. So um, we're also then, from that point of view, the precepts are, how you practice the precepts is to see if you can express your true nature. Now, true nature, we could also say your good heart. How do you express your good heart, your wise heart, your compassionate heart? How do you do something with your heart as opposed to trying to get it right with your head? So this is a shift as we continue on in practice and on in our life this is part of our life journey to see, can I do more with my more activities, more behaviors from my heart and not just from my head? And that's expressing your true nature. And then Suzuki Roshi said, and sometimes when you express your true nature, you will need to apologize. <laughs> oh, I guess that wasn't as good an expression of my true nature as I would like it to be. You're right. So this is what I was trying to say when I apologized. You know, I'm aiming to express my true nature, my heart, my heartfelt response to life, and it, it kind of missed the mark there, you know. I, I, I could have done better in acknowledging, okay, you wanted to get back to class and so forth, you know. So um, I find this, um, you know, again, when Dogen says uh, to be 
to practice uh, being sincere, he also says practice being wholehearted. And um, I think, you know, for most of us, this is really difficult. It really does take practice. And this is where hindrances become an opportunity for practice, for practice doing something with your heart. Because it's, and, and why don't we just do something with our heart? Because we could miss. And because we've been hurt. And because other people say, um, you know, I'm upset with you. I'm disappointed with you. You're so selfish. You're this, you're that. People, people make assessments about us. And if they're not making assessments, well, you know, of course, the big person making assessments is you yourself. <laughs> Assessing how are you doing? and coming to some conclusion about what's wrong with me. So um, I'm encouraging you, you know, whatever way you can find, you know, how do you come home to your heart? How do you let your experience come to your heart? How do you do anything? Wash the dishes with your heart, sweep the floor with your heart, touch, you know, give your child a bath, um, take care of your grief. And give your heart to your heart. How do you do that? You know, how you do it, you know, people say, how do you do that? Well, you do it awkwardly <laughs> to start with, and then you get better at it. As far as I can tell, you do it awkwardly to start with, and then you get better. You're tender. You begin to have a tender feeling for someone who tries so hard, you, trying so hard to be a good person and to not harm others and to benefit others. And there's no way to consistently, time after time, get it perfect and right so that everybody applauds and they, they give you that, you know. The poor guy in that parable, you know, the, son, the one son goes off with half the father's fortune and he comes back, you know, finally after all these years, he's, you know, it, it's not quite like we usually understand it, you know, that a sinner has repented. What, he's, what he decided was, you know, I'm having a hard time getting anything to eat here. And, you know, I'm taking care of the pigs and I'm eating pig slop because that's the only food I can get. You know what? My dad treats his slaves better than I'm getting treated. I think I'm going to go back and ask my dad if I can be one of his slaves. <laughs> So he goes back and the, the dad sees him coming and is overjoyed. And, um, and he calls the servants and he says, you know, kill the fatted calf and, you know, let's have a party and we're going to welcome him home and it's so great that he's here. And, um, you know, the son comes and says, you know, and the father says, oh, it's so great to see you. And the son says, well, yeah, I thought maybe I could be your slave. And the father says, oh, no, no, you know, hey, it's great to have you back. We're going to have a party. Um, and, of course, then at some point, you know, the other son, who's been doing everything right, <laughs> taking care of all of his responsibilities, his obligations, his commitments, he says, Dad, excuse me, but you never gave me this kind of party. Uh, 
Well, most of us are like that other brother, you know, the brother who's been working all those years, you know, and waiting for our party. <laughs> oh, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> So um, one way to do that, of course, is give it to yourself or give someone else the party. And then if you give someone else the party, you're included. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so, um, you know, once in a while when you're, uh, you will come to, um, you know, in Zen we sometimes call it not moving. Uh, recently I was in Toledo and I went to an Aikido class and we were studying this, not moving. How do you stand and somebody's pushing on you and you don't move? And uh, the way not to move is, uh, you know, if somebody's pushing on you, one thing to do is you try to push back. And, you know, um, so you, or you, um, or you kind of like, see if you can get away. So what about just like somebody's pushing and, and you're not going to resist and you're not going to go away. And with your own feelings, you're not resisting them you're not going away. With your thoughts, you're not resisting, you're not going away. Uh, And at this time of uh, not moving, um, you know, things can get very quiet. Your mind becomes very quiet when you're not pushing, when you're not resisting, when you're not trying to get away, and you're sitting with things, Uh, as Jack sometimes says, right in the middle of the world, right in the middle of your heart. And at that time when things are very quiet, also sometimes, you know, something will come to you. You will have some, uh, you can make a different kind of choice. You can come to a different choice in your life. And you can choose another uh, way another way of being or another possible response to circumstances. It's not the usual resist, 
or abandon the place. Abandon your place. So I'd like to encourage you to, you know, study this. Um, study coming to, you know, not moving, coming to stillness with your experience, with your thoughts, with your feelings, not trying to get rid of them or fix them, not trying to sweep away the dust. And when you study in this way, you know, the, uh, the great road has no gate. It begins in your mind. And you begin to know the next step. Not because, you know, it's the right thing to do, but you know the step because you're studying so closely your experience and you know so well your own heart. If people knew, of course, how hard you'd work to earn your mastery, they wouldn't think it was so wonderful. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, thank you. Um, I'd like to, um, I like to dedicate the merit of our practice together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.